Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up and welcome in. You're listening to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. Open phone lines for you at 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776. That's the telephone number. Hit me up on Snapchat, Hood. You follow me on Snapchat. I will follow you back, guaranteed. Also on Instagram, IGJHood. Glad to have you in here on this Thursday here from our First Midwest Bank studios as we will hear from Bobby Carpenter from... 97.1 The Fan of our sister station ESPN Radio in Columbus, Ohio. The uh, reason why Bobby's on, Bobby is great when it comes to the NFL draft and what the Bears could be looking at. We'll talk to Bobby coming up in about eight minutes here on ESPN 1000, getting his overall look at the NFL draft. You know the draft's right around the corner, and our coverage starts next Thursday, uh, Thursday night, right here on ESPN 1000 for round number one. And even though the Bears are not thoroughly involved in the draft, you never know. Maybe they'll trade up to be in day two, maybe in day one. We don't know. I know that for the most part, the Bears are are firmly entrenched on what they want from a roster standpoint. Now they just want to add a little garnish to that steak uh, that they have, especially led by Khalil Mack, Mitch Trubisky, and the rest of the Chicago Bears. So I'm looking forward to the upcoming season, but also looking forward to seeing how the Bears are able to take care of some of their holes uh, in the secondary, uh, to be able to see what they're going to do at the running back spot, uh, and obviously in special teams with the kicker. So there's a number of things that... The Bears still need to shore up to solidify themselves as a contender for the Vince Lombardi Trophy, to be at the top of their game, to be able to win uh, the NFC North. It's not going to be easy. As I talked to Jeff Dickerson earlier in our last half hour, I said, you know, at first blush with the pen, I saw the Bears at 10-6. and six. Of course, I could always change it. I still see them as a playoff team. We'll see. Uh, but I, I look at... This team that has more good than bad on it, more positives than negatives. There's, there's actually more question marks than negatives, actually, with this football team. So we'll hear from Bobby Carpenter, who's really good when it comes to analyzing college football and what we can expect uh, for the next generation of NFL players. He'll be with us coming up here on ESPN 1000. Well, we, we changed the format a little bit of the show tonight, guys, because even though we still have our college football guys on to talk to us about the draft. Um, we changed a few things because uh, of the passing of the godfather of sports talk radio in Chicago, Chet Kopic. And Chet uh, was in a car accident in early April, something I had not had no idea that this was happening to Chet. Um, he was a passenger in a vehicle driven by a 50-year-old woman from Hammond, Indiana, according to the South Carolina Highway Patrol. The vehicle crossed a median and struck another vehicle head-on, which hit a third vehicle. Kopic uh, then suffered multiple injuries in the crash and was transported to the Memorial University Medical Center in Savannah, Georgia. And, uh, and he was right there with his family, and he was um, pronounced dead there yesterday and uh, we found out about this morning we 
know that Chet Kopic was um, was terrific uh, as someone for decades in Chicago, worked in television, worked in radio, uh, print in Chicago, worked in Indianapolis and worked in New York as well. Uh, also credited for developing a sports magazine format, TV and radio, and worked here at AM1000. Uh, I am in his chair because he was the one who started this uh, format of sports talk radio uh, as far as his show is concerned, Copic on Sports, which was a tremendous weeknight show. And uh, when anyone questions whether or not sports radio works at night or if it's relevant at night, I will point to you at with a Copic on Sports. The feeling that sports talk is only between 5 a.m. and 7 p.m. or 5 a.m. and 6 p.m. It's not true. Uh, I've been here for a long time. Chet was in this chair for a long time. The idea that what you're listening to is ancillary or not important, it's not true. Because without Chet, I'm not sitting here. Because he had to be able to prove from his long-form interviews and his uh, unique way of being able to do sports talk um, that it works. And just like this show, Under the Hood, it works. Uh, I'm going to miss him because he was an advocate of mine. Um, he wrote about me in his book, which, I, which in one of his books, which is just amazing to me. I will tell you this story. Um, so if you find me on Twitter, twitter.com, tweetjhood, there is a picture of a live event, a remote I did with Chet Kopic before a Super Bowl about four or five years ago. And when I got the notice that I'll be working with Chet, doing a talk show side by side, uh, I was completely nervous. And I, I, one of the things that you have to know, and I can't speak for anybody else, I can only speak for me, that there's always, anytime that you come into the booth, it's never like routine. There's always a little bit of trepidation, like, okay, how many words can I string together to make a complete sentence? Will I make sense? Um, you know, are, am I taking the right angle with the topics of the day? And going to that remote and working with the Godfather of Sports Radio, it, it is... Um, it was daunting. It was odd because my thought was, why am I working with Chet? Like, what, like, how is it that I get that opportunity to work with Chet? It's like, how am I working with someone that many of us put on a pedestal as saying, you were the guinea pig for all this. You started this by having a nightly talk show, and now I'm actually getting a chance to work with him. Man, that was just amazing. It was a blast. And I had him sign the poster that was in the bar that we were working at together. I can't remember the bar. I just know that I kept that, and he signed it. It's on my Twitter, twitter.com, tweetjhood. Um, but, man, it, it was just amazing to work with him. And he was, I think Chet himself, which was really odd, I, He first of all, he was surprised that I listened to his show when I was a kid. And I would quote certain things that he would say, certain phrases that he would say. And he would be like, what, you remember that? Like, why, why wouldn't I? Like, and Chet's ego was, was massive, and, um, and you have to have some kind of ego when you're in this business. You got to have something. You, can't, you cannot go in here with, no, with, with uh, no ego and, you know, coming in uh, like a snowflake. Like, oh, I'm just here and just here to do a show, la, la, la. That's not how it works. And, and Chet really was 
Randy Macho Man Savage. He really was uh, superstar Billy Graham. He was Nature Boy Buddy Rogers because he lived his gimmick as someone with not only with the great gift to gab, was someone that was great on the mic, great interviewer, terrific sportscaster. But the other thing is, is that with Chet, you ne- always saw him dressed to the nines, always with the three-piece suit, always with the big hat, always with the garish uh, big coat <laughs> because he wanted to be that guy. I think deep down he really was Nature Boy Buddy Rogers before uh, Ric Flair, before you know, some of these other great uh, competitors and, and sports figures or Muhammad Ali. He wanted to be that guy, and he was that guy. And so um, I just uh, I, I really think about him tonight and doing this show tonight because very similar to me, he's doing every he did everything that he could as a former voice for Notre Dame football doing pre and post worked for the NBA network worked with the WWF um, worked did roller derby and did so many things away from the mic as far, as far as working with the Little City Foundation and Special Kids Network. He did so many things. So, and the other thing is, too, I'll tell you this, as we get ready to talk to Bobby Carpenter. If there was an event, if there was a luncheon, if there was a dinner that involved a, an athlete, Chet was there to be able to emcee it. That guy knew what the check was. <laughs> and even up to his death, he knew, like, if there is a banquet, there's a luncheon, there's this, there's that. Carmichael's, my gosh, uh, Carmichael's, you got to be there. The greatest stakes, they'll knock you out. Um, uh, it's trip ages, it's trip aces at the Bellagio. My gosh, you talk about the very best. Carmichael's, I mean, I mean, that guy knew how to pitch, and that guy knew how to sell. And that's who, who Chet was. Just um, an amazing figure. There will never be another one like him. And so I tell you that story because at the bottom of the hour, I had a long-form conversation. I don't feel like I do interviews, especially with people I know. I think they're conversations. So I had a long-form conversation with Chet Kopic, the godfather of sports talk radio in Chicago. Late last year, as part of the Under the Hood podcast. Now, you can hear it in its entirety if you have Spotify, you have SoundCloud, you have iTunes. Um, it's just one click and you're in. You'll be able to hear that long-form conversation. Um, but you'll be able to hear that conversation coming up at the bottom of the hour at 935. Uh, some of that conversation I had with Chet Kopic. I hope that you get a chance to enjoy some of the um, conversation he had. He talked about Dan McNeil, right? He talked about relationships in sports talk radio. So we'll hear from uh, Chet coming up at 935. Right now on the line with us is Bobby Carpenter from our sister station, ESPN Columbus 97.1 The Fan. As we talk about the NFL draft with uh, Bobby Carpenter, you know, the draft's right around the corner. And uh, Bobby will join us here on ESPN 1000, ESPN app, the former Buckeye and talk show host at uh, The Fan. Bobby, as always, I appreciate your time. I want to talk to you about a number of players, but because you're in Columbus, you can tell us about Nick Bosa. Can you just tell us how good a player was Nick Bosa for the Buckeyes? He probably didn't play as much as his brother did in his first year, but then his sophomore campaign, absolutely fantastic. You know, I think he was poised to become you know, one of the top players in the nation as a junior, unfortunately, he had the abdominal injury against Texas um, 
uh, TCU, Texas Christian, and then he doesn't, he's not able to play again the rest of the season. But during his time, I mean, especially his sophomore year, and he was borderline unblockable. And, you know, it's easy because you have that, you know, the lazy comparison to his brother, but there are a lot of similarities there. Both guys came in looking the part physically ready to go. And then they were also very skilled with their hand technique, obviously, you know, with a large part of their dad being involved. But they were as ready to go as any two defensive ends I've seen enter college. And that's why they had so much success so early on. Uh, there's been so much uh, conversation about the quarterbacks in this draft with Haskins and Murray, but would you say that that if it wasn't for the quarterback con- uh, conversation, that Bosa would be considered the best player in this draft? Like, he, should he be number one? Uh, you know, here's the thing, John, and you know as well as anybody. I mean, quarterbacks are always overdrafted. They're overdrafted every single year because it's the most important position. But if you start simply looking at you know best player. And then I think you factor in the consistency of knowing what you're going to get based upon you know his family history. I think you know Nick Bosa probably should be the number one overall pick based on his ability. And then the fact I think that he has still a big upside, but his downside is so high as well. Like the floor for him is ridiculously high because of you know the family he comes from. You saw his brother produce in the NFL, and you know how well he's going to be able to come in and play. So, yeah, the quarterback hype is always going to be there. And if there's a decent quarterback, they're typically always going to go number one. But I would argue that Nick Bosa is probably as safe a pick as you're going to have in the top five. That's, you know, and we're talking to Bobby Carpenter with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. It's it's so funny, Bobby, because some of these general managers are just – they're not trying to outsmart the room. They're trying to outdumb the room. Like if you if you don't believe in Josh Rosen as your quarterback, then you trade him. But don't let him be in the press as like he was today, saying, you know, I'm annoyed by the process. I don't know if I'm staying. I don't know if I'm leaving. If you believe, if you have a quarterback you can build around with Kingsbury as the head coach, then just get the best player in Nick Bosa and not try to have Murray versus Rosen because having two young quarterbacks doesn't help. But a difference maker like Bosa would help, I, I would think. Would it not? Oh, he definitely would help. And, and here's the irony here. Steve Kime hired Steve Wilkes last year. You know, they gave him a year and they fired him. Well, I don't know if Steve Wilkes is a good coach or a bad coach, but based upon the roster that he was given with a rookie quarterback, I don't think you can make a judgment based upon that. So you move on from him and you bring in Clint Kingsbury, and maybe he wants a different quarterback for his system. And that's probably something that you should have vetted out and that you better make sure that you were comfortable with going in once you hired him, because if you knew he didn't necessarily want Josh Rosen and he wanted Kingsbury, then you should have been ready to trade him immediately. And, hey, if you're going to get a second-round pick for him, great. If you get a third-round, whatever, people probably aren't going to give you a first-round pick. But you should have known that going in, because if not, yes, the Cardinals roster needs playmakers, and they need guys that are going to be surefire playmakers for him as well. And Nick Bosa is definitely going to provide them some of that. There's some other great defensive linemen in this draft that there's a ton of them. I think Nick is probably the safest. But part of the thing, John, it's lying season right now for the NFL GMs. <laughs> they're going to go out there, they're going to say anything to anybody. And one of my friends, James Laurinaitis, you know, works at the station there with me, played with the Rams for a long time. And he said, you know, he talked to one GM that told him he feels like he has to go to confession after the draft because of how many <laughs> lies he's told throughout the month. And, you know, there's, there's all the misinformation out there to try to get people to move around and to jockey for positions. It's absolutely crazy. And, and so, you know, you look at a guy like Nick Bosa at the top of the draft, and I think he's probably the safest pick. There's a ton of other defensive linemen that are up there. You see a guy like Rashawn Gary, they're talking about how he's falling. You know, that one, you know, I've talked to people in league circles that think that he could be just as good as either of the Bosa's. 
He doesn't necessarily have the production, but now there's all these injury concerns and all these things are starting to leak out, and you just begin to wonder, there's actual concerns, or are those just things to try to drive down his price so someone could potentially get him later in the first? Yeah, Bobby, no no shade on Kyler Murray, but I saw a lot of Haskins being here in Big Ten country like like you saw him up close and personal in Columbus. So um, I think that Haskins has the ability to be the better quarterback of the two. I, I just think that the upside is there. If he's there at six, it just makes it makes sense for the Giants to take him. But again, who knows? What, what did you like most about Haskins uh, with the Buckeyes? Well, first of all, day one, you know, I saw Dwayne Kellogg on campus you realize that he's not I mean, hes not the most fleet of foot guy. He's uh, an adequate runner, and he can move in the pocket. But because of that, he always has to deliver the ball on time, and he can't hang on to it and try to make plays. And so there's good and bad with that. And once he threw about the middle of the season, I think he got it. By week five, six, seven right there, his reads really started clicking. He finally had some experience under his belt. He was ready to go. But he throws one of the prettiest balls, Jonathan, you will ever see. I mean, and he can make all the throws. He can bang the deep out. He can sculpt the ball and seam routes over the middle. He's got a nice little flip that he can throw on screens. The guy, the guy can make every pass. He's very humble. He's a quiet guy, you know. But he's still a leader. And so I, I love, I love Dwayne Haskins. If I was an NFL GM, he would be my guy. And maybe that's just because I'm a little closer to him than I would be Tyler Murray. And frankly. I'm all about limiting downside. I don't know if I would be brave enough as a GM to draft a 5'10 quarterback you know, who has one year as a starter. I'm not saying that he can't do it. It's just that, to me, there's a lot more risk there and a lot more questions that he's going to have to answer than you would with a more of a, of a traditional guy like Dwayne Haskins. Bobby Carpenter from 97.1 The Fan from ESPN Columbus with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Um, is there anybody, uh, as far as wide receivers, that impressed you last year uh, in college? You know, this is kind of a weak wide receiver draft. And, you know, when you look at it top to bottom, there isn't the flashy guy at the top. There's not the A.J. Greens, the Julio Jones, guys that you look at and you think, wow, like, you know, even on Amari Cooper, guys that you know have fit check all the boxes. Where they're big, they're fast, they can run, they can catch. You know, there's a, uh, there's a number of guys that you could probably find you know, through the middle rounds. Um, and it's interesting. You know, a guy like Terry McLaurin in Ohio State. As we've been talking a lot about those guys, he uh, you know he was someone I thought would probably be a fifth, sixth, seventh round guy. And people have talked about him sliding into potentially the second day, um, just because you know part of it is you know he's tests out through the roof. He was kind of the fourth receiver at Ohio State, so he didn't get a ton of balls. But, you know, I think he could be a real sleeper somewhere with a guy that could end up being your third, fourth wideout for about a decade who can play some special teams. He's a great guy. But as far as, like, these elite playmakers at the top end, I just don't really see them there this year. This year, it's more in the tight ends than it actually is in the wide receivers. I'm looking forward to seeing Devin Bush uh, on the next level. Uh, inside linebacker from Michigan, a lot of projections have him as a top 10 pick. Some say top 12. Did you, what do you remember most about Bush and what he did from, as, from a pass rush standpoint for the Wolverines? Oh, he's explosive. Guy, guy can get up and move. Not the biggest guy you're going to find in the world, but he can get up and go. And uh, a very instinctive player. I liked, what I, I liked what I've seen out of him uh, this year. They had a really good defense up there in Michigan, and he was a big reason why. Um, and they're, coincidentally enough, you know, one of their coaches, a couple of their coaches, Al Washington and Greg Madison, came down to Ohio State, and I'm, I'm interested to pick their brain here over the next couple of days before I head over to Nashville for the draft to kind of 
get a little bit more insights on him because he was a guy that was really intriguing for me. And I think, you know, him and then White out of uh, LSU, those to me are the two premier inside linebackers in this draft. Okay, um, so what is life like, you know, post-Urban? How are fans responding to what could be still a successful season for the Ohio State Buckeyes? You know, it's just a little bit of a transition. I think this is the first time in at least recent history and since Woody Hayes that the, the coach has come into Ohio State that has never had head coaching experience before. Mr. Ryan Day has got some things that he's trying to work through. You know, he's a very talented offensive play caller. He's a heck of a guy. Uh, he's doing a great job in recruiting. They have an unbelievable staff. As he kept you know, many of the guys that Urban had brought in, over they've got a very talented roster you know and they had a really good spring and he's sitting here you know trying to break in justin fields and teach him a little bit you know about how to play quarterback in the pocket he transfers in from georgia he played a little bit down there but you know the success of ohio state this year is really going to ride on how well he's able to grasp the offense and then how efficient he's going to be with the football i I, i'm looking at the schedule does it not seem favorable I mean, look, you're playing – obviously the Michigan game, everyone's going to be watching that on November 30th. I'm circling that. But Penn State comes to Columbus. Wisconsin comes to Columbus. Um, you got to play against Northwestern. I'll be there for that on October 18th. But the, does the schedule look favorable for Ohio State based on what you've seen? Oh, it's, it's a great schedule. There is no huge non-conference game, and you know, people will get upset about that, but it was supposed to be a home-and-home home series with TCU – and they ended up essentially making it a neutral-ish site last year and having it in Dallas at AT&T Stadium, and then they dropped the back end of it. So I think Ohio State had to pick up Florida Atlantic, and that's why there's not that premier non-conference game. But outside of that, you hit it. The, most of the big games, the Michigan State, Penn State, like those games, they're going to be in Columbus this year outside of having to travel to Michigan at the end of the season, which, you know, Michigan, they've battled, they've struggled a little bit. You know, this was supposed to year knocked off Ohio State. It didn't happen. You know, one thing, you look at Jim Trestle and what he was able to do, 9-1 and against Michigan, Urban Meyer, 7-0, and and that's essentially dropped into Ryan Day's lap to see if he can continue that on. Mm-hmm. So he's going to have a heck of a task for him come the Saturday before Thanksgiving, You know, taking on a Jim Harbaugh-led team that's looking for their first win in a number of years. Bobby, I'm glad you spent some time. I just wanted to just pick your brain on some of these players that's going to be part of the draft coming up next week. And, uh, of course, as a college football fan, I cannot wait for the season to start, so I had to get your thoughts. I just talked to Brandstetter from the, from the Michigan Wolverines broadcast, and uh, mm-hmm. he's coming for you. He's, he's, he, they, they also feel they have a favorable schedule. They also, and they do. It is, it is somewhat soft until they take on Ohio State. So that's always the, the main event there. Absolutely, Jonathan. It's it's always a battle. And that's hey, that's one of the best things about the Big Ten is that game being the final game of the season. Oh, that's going to be great, Bobby. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Jonathan. It's uh, Bobby Carpenter, my uh, colleague from ESPN Radio, also from our sister station, ninety-seven one, the Fan in ESPN Columbus. Glad that you're with us, Jonathan Hood on ESPN one thousand. Jonathan Hood. And I got what it takes to rock, to rock, rock, yeah. On ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app.
Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Hit me up on Snapchat, SnapJHood, Instagram, IGJHood. Glad that you're with us. As we celebrate the life of the great Chet Kopik, the godfather of sports talk radio here in this city. I'm sitting in his seat. He was started AM 1000. He was here for many years doing Kopik on sports. And I had a long-form conversation with Chet on the Under the Hood podcast. You can hear it in its entirety wherever you download your podcast. Again, SoundCloud, iTunes, Apple Music, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Look for Episode 3 of Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood and my conversation with Chet Kopic. In this um, conversation I had with Chet, we talked about uh, the media. We talked about journalism and sports talk radio also, his relationship with Dan McNeil, his uh, producer for Copagon Sports back in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, here's that conversation with Chet uh, regarding journalism uh, as, again, he passed away uh, yesterday and we celebrate his life here on Under the Hood. I also want to talk to you about the newspaper business, Chet, because um, I think you and I are the last ones that are still buying newspapers. I know that I'm still getting them every Sunday. Um, the thing that, that kind of molded and shaped me as a broadcaster is growing up with my grandparents, coming to the to the table, they uh, get the Sun-Times Tribune, Chicago Defender, yeah. uh, Chicago Southtown, the uh, Daily, sure. Daily Calumet at the time. And they would ask me, and they'd say, well, what's in the paper today? They'd give it to me and say, what's in the paper? And I would immediately turn it over to the back page because that's where the sports were. They said, right. no, no, no. No, what's on the front page? He says, my grandfather would say, hey, there might be someone in the train that asks what's on the front page. Make sure that you know what the story is. So we would always have these discussions about they were very political, uh, a lot of conversations about politics, and eventually we would get, eventually get to the sports. But um, newspaper journalism really um, shaped me because reading that newspaper and really delving into the Ray Suns, the Vernon Jarrett, so many others right. that uh, did a great job. I, I don't know if we're getting that as a, on a regular basis anymore. And even though the newspaper is, is online, it doesn't mean that you can't have teeth as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, as a columnist. How do you look at newspaper journalism now versus, say, 20 years ago? I don't think there's a comparison. I really don't. I mean, he might not be the most lovable guy in the world, but uh, in my opinion, the last appointment sports columnist in Chicago was Jay Mariotti. I mean, I, I didn't like the uh, the Jerry's routine. He was pulling. I thought from time to time it uh, bordered on being very anti-Semitic. I thought the gimmick got uh, stale after a while. But, you know, people did respond to Jay Mariotti. Uh, i got to be frank with you. When I walk into the East Bank Club, John, where I still go no more than eight days a week to have breakfast, <laughs> people look at me like I'm nuts because I've got the New York Times, USA Today, the Trib, and the Sun-Times. And I look at the Sun-Times... And it's thinner and thinner. And there isn't really that one columnist, say Michael Sneed, who still writes pretty damn good uh, gossip columnist, who really intrigues me. Uh, there aren't those beat writers right now who you feel like you, know, you, you can't afford to miss them. I, I, I see, John, too much camaraderie today. I see this in press boxes. I, I still go to uh, virtually every Bear home game. And I, I, I love sitting in the press box. And, and the Bears are kind enough, even though I have no specific media affiliation. I think it's kind of like, you know, you've been a member in good standing for 2,000 years. So, you know, we're happy to give you a seat. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see people who are, who are TV people who should be competing against each other. And they're, they're treating each other like brother and sister. And 
I think in particular, if you look at the female reporters in this town, all of whom have talent. By the way, you mark my words, Lauren Majera is not long for WGN. She's going to the network. I don't know if it's going to be Espen or ABC or CBS or Fox or whatever, but she is uniquely gifted. But I, I see too much camaraderie. And, I mean, 20 years ago, that camaraderie was not there. You think, you think Jay Mariotti ever talked to anybody? He didn't talk to himself. Right. I mean, you know, he was, the, he was the meanest SOB in the Valley. I remember, you know, Mary and I, Adi and I did a television show together for a couple of years back, about 89 and 90. And, I mean, there were days I wanted to slug him. But I always knew this. We were doing damn good television because he was fiery. He was, he was flamboyant. And, John, ask yourself this. Do we have any columnists today who traveled the way Mariotti used to travel? Who no. worked the hours Jay used to work? No. The answer is no. I mean, there is no. The closest to it is David Haw. And I think, really, if David would just let it all hang out a little bit more, he'd be a prime timer. And he is a prime timer. I mean, when you're doing uh, the Wake of the News column in the Chicago Tribune, you are a prime time writer. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't really feel like. There, there is that one appointment columnist in Chicago right now. Save, save John Cass. I do like John Cass, but you brought up Vernon Jarrett. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we turning out Vernon Jarrett's? Is my question. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. David would be, would probably be my favorite columnist in the city right now because. You know, especially when it comes to the Bulls and the Bears, I think that he does a really good job of yeah. just catch, capturing the essence of the thing. So I like that. But I wish there was there's more David Hawes. I wish there was someone to even push David even more so as a columnist because he shines brightly over everyone else. And I'd like to see more of that, um, you know, in both newspapers. Um, you know, we talk about newspapers and journalism. What about the sports radio? You talked earlier about, and I was going to ask you whether or not you're going to have one more run. I still i am going to ask you that um, as far as sports radio. But how do you look at the current sports radio landscape right now for both stations? I think there's a great deal of talent. And I, I mean that sincerely. Um, am I a big fan of Dan Bernstein? No, I mean, I really don't like him as an individual or as a broadcaster, but he does have a certain kind of appeal. Um, I look at uh, uh, Carmen and, uh, and Yurko, I look at Sylvia and Waddle, and you have to be impressed by one thing, and that is longevity. Obviously, they are generating revenue. I look at a guy like John Hood, and I'm impressed. You're a talented guy. I've always said that. Um, I think the talent right now is as good as it was back in the 90s. Every bit is good. I don't think uh, today's sports uh, talk radio stations have to... Uh, Apologize for, for a darn thing. Now, I, I think I think here again, maybe it was a little bit more aggressive when North and Copic, and maybe McNeil were you know, um, picking them up and laying them down. Mm-hmm. I think today there is maybe a little bit of reticence to go after a Jerry Reinsdorf owned operation with certain guys, and and I understand that because you know we have become a a society that is driven by being politically correct. And general managers don't want calls at 2 o'clock in the morning from, from ticked-off owners and general managers. They don't want to come into a slew of emails saying, you know, why did so-and-so say this at 7.45 last night? I, I understand that. But in terms of are these guys talented today, they're extremely talented. Anybody who thinks they're not is simply being narrow-minded and jealous. Chad, at the time of the the advent of sports radio as a format in Chicago, 
you are not necessarily a, a fan of it, not thinking that the score could work based on the yeah. was it based on the lineup or was it based on you being on the top of the mountain, being the um, the the must listen to radio show for years in Chicago, and then the sports radio landscape comes out. What was your initial reaction? to the score, because I don't think you were too favorable on it when it first started. No, but what I had in mind, John, was something that uh, I thought would have been tremendous. You know, uh, I was the first guy the score tried to hire, and uh, I listened, but I, I turned them down because, as you recall, at that time, they were a daytimer, and I, I really wasn't interested in doing a show that would run from 3 to 4.15. So, you know, when they did launch, uh, it became apparent to me very, very rapidly that they were going to be the anti-Chet Copic. Their shows were not going to be guest-driven. John, as you recall, there were nights we'd have 10, 12 guests yes. on my show. They were going in a different direction. They were saying, basically, you people out there who are angry, frustrated, mad at your boss, disgusted with your job, yeah, hate what athletes earn, come fly with us, which ain't a bad way to go. They became the anti-copic. So I saw, I saw a chance to create a tremendous, tremendous feud. Uh, Dan Bickley, before he left to go out to uh, Arizona, did a, a big takeout on me in the Sun-Times, and they were kind enough to use my picture on the uh, on the back page. And I, I said of North that I thought his George Went Dub Bears impersonation was pathetic and an insult to radio. I didn't really mean it. Didn't mean it at all. <laughs> but what I thought would happen was I thought North would come firing out at me. We'd have a feud that would be good for both of us. But and, and I often joke with Mike, and Mike says to me, you know what, Copic? I didn't take the bait. I knew what you were trying to do. I may have been naive, but I wasn't stupid, and I knew what you were trying to do. <laughs> and, you know, hey, I look back on those days, John, very, very fondly. I had a wonderful run. And would, would I like to do Sports Talk Radio again if I had the proper creative environment? It wouldn't be about money. I mean, fortunately... I'm never going to be a Rockefeller or a Vanderbilt, but I'm in a pretty good financial position at this stage of my life. But if something emerged that was really creatively enticing, um, I, I would say yes, sure. Like Webio. Oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you talk about it. You know, we made one mistake with Webio. What did we do? What was the mistake that we Well, made? as you recall, we had that staff meeting. <laughs> with David Hernandez. Yes. And uh, Hernandez is just talking about how, uh, don't worry, uh, just uh, send your routing number to my secretary. All the checks are going to be there. And then Tim Bach went, um, I just got a text from my wife. It says the feds are looking for you. Well, I was sitting right next to Doug before, and I said, why don't we tackle the son of a bitch? And, right. and we didn't do it. And I, I'll, I'll go to my grave wondering why we didn't do it. Because, I mean, you know, I, I can laugh about it now, but, John, if you stop and think about it, Look at the gig you left. Look at what I left. Right. Look at what George Offman left. Look at what so many people left. And and they got jobbed by this absolute scam artist, this pathetic, hopeless scam artist. And I didn't really feel bad for uh, for me so much as I felt bad for um, people who were younger than me, mm -hmm. people who I, I felt were trying to uh, shape and mold their careers and this was going to be a springboard to something uh, extraordinary, or Webio itself was going to be extraordinary, and we were going to reinvent the wheel. You know, whatever the case may be, um, I, I saw what the potential was. I had a pretty good vibe for what they had in mind for years one, two, and three. But I will never forget this. 
When North called me and said, I want you on Webio, I said, terrific. I said, I want to fly solo. He said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to change all that with you. Your partner's going to be Boom Boom Mancini. And I'm telling you, John, <laughs> I swallowed the receiver. <laughs> I said, I said, oh. I said, other than the fact that he had 74 fights and he's living in Malibu, California, just what are we going to talk about? <laughs> I remember the, the first week we were on the air, Blackhawks were in the playoffs under Quenville. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesse Rogers, who, as you know, was a big, big hockey fan. Jesse called down and got a hold of, uh, I think it was Jay Blunk or John McDonough, uh, one of those guys who were both just consummate stand-up fighters, and said, you know, we, we know it's against the rules, but can you get us Quenville? We're in a launch mode. This would really be helpful. So Joel agrees to come on, and I, I give Joel a couple of hockey questions, and then Boom Boom hops in and goes, Coach, Coach, this is Ray Mancini. I, I'm out in California. I'm not going to be able to see the games with Coach. I, I want to say this. It, it doesn't make any difference who wins or loses, but you got to win every fight. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> I mean, there was, a, there was this dead silence, and finally I said, Joel, you know what? I think Boom Boom makes a lot of sense. Why don't you walk in right now and tell Stan Bowman, John McDonough, and Jay Blunk that you don't care if you get knocked out for love, but you're going to win every fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, just one Google search, everybody. ChicagoSportsWebio.com. The whole story is there of the ill-fated um, ChicagoSportsWebio.com. I will tell you, at the time, Chet, it was great timing for me because as oh, yeah. we talk about sometimes you have to – to kind of reinvent and reset yourself. And at the time, working at um, 1000, I uh, I wasn't utilized. There was a, there were cutbacks at night, and uh, they were not utilizing me, and I was sitting at home, and I... Uh, well, and you, you and Doyle, you and Doyle were great together. Well, that's, that's an I interesting story. I mean, it was story. a very, very rhythmic team that uh, I thought had exception, just, I mean, tremendous potential. Well, the, the, here's the reason why, is, is someone with an ego like me can, uh, can clearly understand this. When you're working with a former athlete, you take a step back. Yeah. Because all athletes want is direction. And so for Tim Doyle, the Northwestern Wildcat, all you had to do is tell him, okay, this is the direction we're going to. We're going to talk baseball, and we're going to talk about this specifically. And he understood that. Any former athlete I've worked with, Chet, for the most part, understands, okay, just give me a direction and I'll go there. Yeah. And, and and Doyle was able to fit right in. And, you know, he says, he, I see him now um, out in the streets. He says, thank you so much for carrying me for those 55 shows. I say, hey, you know what? We we made music together. You know, you, we made terrific music together for 55 shows. And it helped me because I wasn't being utilized. So I was great glad to get the rust off. Now, John, there are exceptions. I'm at Channel 5. It's 1981. Mm-hmm. Station decides to hire Jimmy Pearsall. Yeah. To be our uh, our playoff and World Series baseball analyst, Jimmy arrives on day one. He walks in, un- unloads his big satchel with about two hundred pills on a table. You know his antidepressants. Yes. And uh, he says to Jeff Davis and I, he goes, "Fellas, I want you to know I'm really here to learn from you guys because you're pros, and I I, I really don't know a great deal about this. So really, whatever whatever instructions you give me, uh, I'll, I'll happily accept and I'll go along with the program." So about 15 minutes later, Jeff Davis walks in and goes, uh, Jimmy, your first highlight's going to be, you know, blank hitting a home run. And Pearsall goes, what the hell did you say to me? Don't you ever tell me what highlight I'm going to narrate. Nobody <laughs> tells me what highlight to narrate. Oh, no. I thought Pearsall was going to knock him into the Chicago River. <laughs> <laughs> 
Harry oh. Carey had the greatest line about Pearsall I ever heard. And that was when he once said back in the 70s, Jimmy, the only time you act like you're crazy is when you can make money off it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Jimmy Pearsall was just one of a kind. I enjoyed the uh, the, the native out of Waterbury, Connecticut. Ah, right. it's, a, it's a terrific guy. Right. Um, so, um, just stay on the sports radio theme. Be, I want you to, to talk to us a little bit about the AM-FM loop and how great it was. I don't think that millennials even understand uh, how great that era was under Jimmy DeCastro. And, but along with that, Dan McNeil was your producer. And yeah. then he would work the weekends. And if he had to fill in, he'd fill in uh, and, and do your show. Talk about that time working with McNeil at that time. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because... WMAQ was going to um, switch formats and go from uh, country and copic on sports to being an all-news outlet, a conservative news outlet, first time. And so, ironically, I saw Jimmy DeCastro at some, uh, oh, I don't know, some restaurant, and he pulled up and said, you want to work for me? And I said, sure. He said, um, here's the drill. I want to put you on Bulls basketball. I want you to do copic on sports, but I'm going to have to have you six days a week for the first six or eight months. Is that a problem? I said, no. So I, I signed on. My producer at WMAQ had been Cheryl Ray. And Cheryl was very, very good, extremely good. But I knew going over to WLUP, where you had a Brandmeyer, and a Kilman, and Kevin, and Stephen Gary, that, boy, this landscape was going to be tough. And I, I could visualize that Cheryl, who's all the five foot one and weighs you know, 102 pounds. Mm-hmm. I, I really felt like she was going to be bulldozed. And I, I never told her this, and I kind of regret it, but I, I, I just kind of backed off and went in a different direction. And I, I searched for a producer, couldn't find anybody who um, really lit my fire. And then I thought about, you know what? What about that guy, Dan McNeil? He'd been writing for the Hammond Times, he'd been whacked. But he wrote a very nice piece about me, and when we talked during the piece, he seemed to have a pretty good, a pretty good knowledge and a pretty good edge to him about sports. So I called him up and I said, "Do you want to be my producer?" He said, "What do I do?" I said, "Well, we book guests, and you'll engineer my show. You'll learn that. It'll take about two days." And I remember Dan walked in the first day and went, "I'm not going to be able to do this. I, I'm just not ready for it." I said, "Dan, take a deep breath. It's going to be fine." John, for about. A year and a half, Dan was the closest thing to a sibling I've ever had in my life. I mean, we got along famously. And then I think Dan began to chomp at the bit, realized that he had uh, his own game he wanted to orchestrate. I think he began to see me as being someone who was not uh, an associate as he was so much uh, an albatross. And so I remember in 91, after the uh, Bulls won their first NBA title, my wife and I went out to San Francisco to vacation. Larry Wirt goes to Ireland to play golf. And McNeil breaks his contract and signs with the score. So um, we have an issue. I get back. Wirt's mad at me because he thought I should have known. I'm mad at McNeil. And, and Wirt was going to put McNeil on the beach for two years. That's what he had left on his contract. And anyway, I, I attend a Bears game, an exhibition game, oh, about a month later. And... And Usher gives me this handwritten letter from Mac, and he talks about how bad he feels and you know how much he misses the relationship already, and you know he hopes that 
you know, I'll, I'll see things his way. And I went to Larry Ward and I said, listen, his girlfriend's, his girlfriend's already knocked up. She's pregnant. If she miscarries, you know, because of stress, you and I are both going to go to our grave with, with enough guilt to uh, fill up Lake Michigan. I said, Larry, let's let her go. And Larry, being a, a very decent, very honorable guy, said, all right, fine. You know, you give him a call and tell him he can make the move. So Dan made the move. And I, I think what's really unfortunate, John, is that Dan and I were not able to part on, on good terms. I think Dan saw me as a guy who uh, was holding him back when that was the last thing I wanted to do. And Dan saw me as a guy who never really appreciated what he put forth when the fact of the matter is, you know, we built the brand of dangerous Dan McNeil. Um, I was the one who lobbied for him to do weekend shows. Um, it's just really a shame. But it goes back, uh, uh, Hoodie, to the fact that, uh, as we've talked earlier in this, uh, uh, in this cast, that sometimes egos, which you have got to have, become your own worst enemy. Would you like to repair that relationship with Dan? Or how would you describe your relationship yeah, at this point? Yeah, sure. Sure. How is the I don't, right now? I, I would you know, say I, we, we haven't talked, and this is sad. You know, in 2015, I wrote a book about Doug Buffon. Mm-hmm. And I've never really talked about this at length, but uh, seven days after we turned in the manuscript of Triumph Books, uh, Doug died. And I saw Dan at uh, Doug's uh, wake. He didn't stay for the funeral. I, I was one of the pallbearers. And uh, we never really had a chance to talk, and I haven't seen him since then. Somebody told me he's now selling uh, cars out in uh, the region, I believe, for a, a Web Ford dealership. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if he's happy or not. I hope he is. I don't have any malice toward Dan. But it's one of those situations where, you know, Hoodie, we, we've tried a couple of times over the years to um, uh, play nice with each other, but something will transpire. Somebody will say something or somebody will misinterpret something, and it's like everything just goes completely awry, which is terribly unfortunate because I, I wish Dan McNeil nothing but the best. When he worked for me and he was on his A game, he was flat out effing tremendous. He was great. I will never take that away from him. Um, could he be difficult? Yeah. Would he pout? Yeah. But you didn't really mind it because he was a character. I mean, he was funny as hell. I mean, you know, he he would walk in and take Beatles songs, and and change them into uh, into hockey songs. Like he, he took the beginning. He took the Beatles song uh, "Blackbird Singing in the Dead of Night" into "Blackhawk Skating on the Power Play." Right. I mean, <laughs> right. He would do things that would just leave me leave me in stitches. Some of my conversation with the great Chet Kopic, who passed away yesterday at the age of 70. You can hear the rest of that on the Under the Hood podcast, uh, wherever you download your podcast, Under the Hood with John the Hood. We thank you for listening to our special broadcast of Under the Hood with John the Hood. I'll talk to you soon right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Thanks for listening. Jonathan Hood. I'm so hood. On ESPN 1000.